Coming to you from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, the city of brotherly love and sisterly affection, I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we speak with national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces, and you are listening in. And this month, we are joined by Reverend Dr. Luke A. Powery. (laughs) He is the Dean of Duke University Chapel and Associate Professor of Homiletics at Duke Divinity School. He's also the author of the new and celebrated book, Becoming Human, the Holy Spirit and the Rhetoric of Race. Now, I invited Dr. Powery to speak with us today because we have been on our own decolonizing journey this year. And the wisdom of Dr. Powery that he drops in this book, Becoming Human, well, this can help us on our journey. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. You know, tweet or insta me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends, free people. I'm serious. This really does make a difference. We have been growing. We have people, more more people downloading. I'm hearing from people all over. I mean, literally, I go places and they're like, yeah, I listen to your your podcast. And I'm like, really? (laughs) And they're like, yes. And thank you for that last one. So, So thank you for listening. Seriously, you do not have to spend an hour of your time each month to listen to our our conversations, but you are, and so we are grateful. Now let's jump in. Okay, so Dr. Powery, first thing I want want to ask is, can you tell us a little bit about your faith journey? We like to start there on Freedom Road, just to have a sense of the person as a person, right? How did you come to serve as Dean of Duke Chapel? That's kind of a large jump, I know. How did you find Jesus? And then how did you come to serve as Dean? Maybe you can kind of link those for us. Sure. Thank you so much for for having me on here. Yeah, it's a great privilege to be in conversation with you. Man, how much time do you have? (laughs) (laughs) An hour. (laughs) In in short, I'm the fifth child uh, and the last one of the Reverend W. Byron Powery and TV Powery. And so I'm a PK, and oh, okay. uh, which means problem kid. <laughs> or party kid, but a pastor's kid. So I, I grew up in the church and my denominations have varied. It's been a very ecumenical experience. My father came out of the Wesleyan holiness tradition. Wow. He worked for the American Bible Society in New York City back in the 60s hmm. uh, into the 70s for 16 years. Uh, so I was born in New York. Um, he was very ecumenical um, in his ministry, Baptist churches, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Episcopalian. And wow. so I would say, you know, knowing New York City, it was very cosmopolitan. So then when I we were when I was small, six years old, we moved to South Florida, to Miami, Florida, oh, a cosmopolitan city. And my father at the time ended up, you know, doing his own business on the side. Hmm. But then he was connected to various social outreach programs, the homeless, you know, feeding those who were hungry and, and needy and that kind of thing. But we were connected to, at the time, 
um, a church of God, which was out of the holiness Pentecostal tradition. So there's a strong thread in the family history, mm -hmm. Wesleyan, holiness, Pentecostal. I'm ordained Baptist out of a church out of Trenton, New Jersey, Progressive National Baptist, which was Dr. King's, you know, ended up being the denomination he became a part of and spun out mm -hmm. of the National Baptist. Mm -hmm. But I would say that upbringing was key for me, meaning music was important, a very musical family. Faith was important. Education was important. And, and kind of ecumenicalism, you know, ecumenism across different denominational traditions, because mm -hmm. What was key, my father did a lot of ministry in Black Baptist churches in South Florida. And when I went to undergrad, California, it was a lot of non-denominational <laughs> experiences. Yeah. The Presbyterian Seminary ended up teaching. Hey. Yeah, Presbyterian what? USA, served a church. So after I was ordained, I ended up serving an English-speaking congregation in Zurich, Switzerland, the International Protestant Church of Zurich. So again, this kind of denominational, a geographical, cross-cultural, yeah. crossing borders yeah. has been my sense of calling. And so... Can I ask you... Yes. What, like, do you, what is the ethnic heritage of your family. Do you know that? Because, you know, I've done a lot of family research and I, I tend to think that part of our, our calls come from our families. Like our family, if like, for example, in my family, you just have a lot of different kind of people and you've got white folk and black folk and native American folk and, you know, and, and, and so because of that, I actually think that's part of what makes what God put up, brought all together to make me a bridge builder, right? Mm. So how did you get this ecumenical call? Yeah, I mean, most definitely. Um, my father is from the Cayman Islands. Both are, my parents were immigrants. Oh, wow. I'm, I was born in New York. My, my mother is from Jamaica. My dad's from the Cayman Islands. So that whole, the Caribbean, the West Indies, as they would say, right? Yeah. And yeah. Long history, I mean, of all kinds of, which is linked to colonialism and mm -hmm. all of that, right? That's right. All of that is playing out in the bloodline, even. And so, you know, there's the saying in Jamaica is out of one, many people. Well, right? wow. Out of one, many people. That's, that, that's actually really deep. Yeah. So huh. there is this sense of because what you have there as an example and in other parts of the the world but you know you have you know what they would say they would say chinese jamaicans you have what they would say indian jamaicans i mean people right all of these different complexions and ethnic influences mm -hmm. spanish german you know all of that mix um because of the history of colonialism shapes what people look like. And also, I would say, you know, the mentality. I mean, Bob Marley was right. Emancipate yourself from mental slavery. Yes. <laughs> it's so true in wow. a lot of ways. But that's sort of, my parents came in the 60s to, to New York. Okay. You know? So this makes sense to me because, you know, they are both immigrants. Mm -hmm. So they actually have the ability and they don't have that um, that African American history in America, so that they were they were blocked into one part of the church. So they're actually able, in some interesting way, to kind of 
move more fluidly through Wesleyan, like the white Wesleyan churches, that's kind of deep. And then the Pentecostal tradition, which is both black and white, and then into the progressive or the, the Baptist, that, right. that's just really interesting. Oh, yeah. No, I, I think that that experience and you're right. You know, you're what our lives play out. Our bloodline plays out through our lives. Right. You can't escape where you come from that's in so right. many ways. And that's the good and the bad, maybe. You're right. Um, and that that has been so my view of the church and the journey, which is why I came to Duke, hmm. because the university chapel is interdenominational from the beginning. It might be high church and have all the, the divinity school is Methodist. Uh-huh. But the chapel is interdenominational. And so it. it and and that was the draw for me yeah. because I recognized that as a key part of my own calling mm. is to cross the borders because there's something beautiful about that. It says something about the breadth and the beauty of God and who mm. God is, right? It's not just monochrome, right? It's poly- wow. polychromatic. And, and, and I think that's the... The beauty, we get a sense. That's why my work on the work, thinking about the spirit is so critical and Pentecost in the book because yeah. multiplicity is the gift of God. Mm. Okay. All right. So what a great segue into <laughs> becoming human. Okay. So we're going to talk about this book because this book is so rich and you're, we're going to need the whole rest of the time to dive into it. Um, one of the descriptions that I read about becoming human. It begins, the dominant story told in our society about race has many components, but two stand out. One, racial difference is an essential characteristic, right? So fully determining individual and group identity. And so that others would actually add to that, if they're coming from a faith perspective, it is from God, right? So race is from God. And then two, um, that racial difference means that some bodies are just simply less human than others. And I I just really want to hear you talk about how have you experienced either of these dominant stories up close and personal? Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> going through a whole lot of things. But let me, let me just say, which story will I choose? Right, right? yeah. But let me let me give you a story that's not even in the book, but okay. it's in it's it's in another story. And I shared it for the first time publicly recently, locally here in a session about becoming human, actually. Okay. And it was local, about 50 people, local church setting. And it's when I first early on in my time here in Durham, North Carolina, there was a, a very uh, elderly man who was the father of someone who was connected to the congregation here at Duke Chapel. He was, you know, in a wheelchair. He lived in a senior community here, and he was an alum of Princeton Seminary many years ago, like from the 30s. And so, and then obviously he loved Duke and, and that kind of thing. And so I had taught at Princeton Seminary before coming here, so there were all these connections. So one day I was new to the area and I thought, let me go do a pastoral visit, basically, and have lunch with him in his community. Okay. And while we were eating, 
I was eating. He he asked me, he started with, do you, because my undergrad was at Stanford University in California. And he said, um, do you think you got into Stanford because of your color? That's how he started. Just out of the blue. I mean, he had Whoa. a red file and out of the blue. And, what? you know, I, I was eating, I was thinking, is this man saying this? <laughs> The, the, the fork is in the food. You know what I mean? Know whether to keep going or to stop and drop it. And Thank run. God <laughs> my hand was on a fork. <laughs> so then he says, um, after he asked that question, he asks, he says, what were your SAT scores? Ah. I didn't answer him, but I was just, I just kept on eating. And then he went quickly to, you probably wouldn't get in today we want to get wouldn't in. get in today what to right. Stanford? yes that's a, so here i am let oh, i mean you, you paint the picture right here i am the first black dean of the chapel right at duke university the sixth in line there's been six of us wow and all these degrees right the pedigree and all of this stuff what it it doesn't matter. There's there's a kind of hermeneutics of suspicion of blackness. Wow. Doesn't matter yes. where you've been, what you've done, how many degrees. And and that kind of interrogation, hyper interrogation of, of blackness was really my, you know, this is just an example of my early time here. Stick your baptism into Duke. <laughs> Baptism into Duke and the South. I mean, it was my, it's, this has been my first time really living in the so-called South wow. because South Florida is not the South. <laughs> my <laughs> daddy is North Florida is, but not South Florida. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. And so this idea of what I try to use in the book a lot, the term racialization, this kind of racialized mentality and reality it was a clear example, right? That mm -hmm. I was suspect because of the way I looked. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I tell a story in the book of my daughter. This is a, also early on. She was, would have been 12 at the time. She's now almost 21. So pray for me. <laughs> <laughs> I will pray. <laughs> we, and it was a special day. Because Dr. Raphael Warnock was here to preach. Ooh. He was then, he wasn't the senator um, right. at the time at mm -hmm. Ebenezer. And he came to preach, but also a portion of his choir came. Tony McNeil was their director of music at the time. And Tony brought, and he's from North Carolina. It was awesome. Mm -hmm. It was a great service. Wow. But what I learned after that service, which, which was really disturbing and really propelled me forward after I made it public over time, but because I sat with it. You know, you sit with these stories. Yes, that's right. And these experiences. Yes. And so what happened was my daughter during the service, I learned this afterwards, my daughter during the service leaned over to her mother, my wife, at some point and asked, is daddy going to get fired? A 12-year-old girl, my daughter, leaned over to my wife and asked her if I was going to get fired. Because you had brought Raphael Warnock, who wasn't even a senator at that time, just talking 
the truth. Raphael Warnock, but also the collective blackness of the choir, right? Historically, Duke Chapel has had black ministers. Benjamin Mays, way back. Samuel Dewitt Proctor was the first. So that wasn't really anything necessarily unusual, but I think it was the collective blackness on that day, the sounds and sights that a 12-year-old girl would take up whatever the cues might be or the liturgical police at play, right? She got it. She sensed it. Is daddy going to get fired? And for me as a dad, man, Mm. That struck me in terms of the grappling with what am I doing here? What did mm. you know? The impact, the things that are not said, or mm. even what she felt in understanding kind of society as a whole to experience that, to say that in that setting really moved, propels, has propelled me forward um, in a lot of the work and thinking that I've been doing that a child, the psyche, right, of the kind of racialized psyche and mantras and oppression and discrimination, whatever you want to say, Mm -hmm. however you want to say it, is at play that a young child, right, can raise that question to her mother. So you say in the book, the church has another story about race. Now, I, I want to say this is the church you're talking about. Yes. So it may not yeah. be the church. It might be Jesus that has another story. <laughs> That's right. It might be God that has another story, yeah. right? Like maybe not the church right. so much, but so what is this other story that you reference? Yeah, I think you're right because it's <laughs> it's the sense that, you know, when you're following Jesus, you might have to resist the church. Hello. Right. Yes. So we're not following the church. We're following Jesus. And that yeah. might put us in tension with the church sometimes so i'm totally in in agreement but for me mm-hmm. it's really about the story in the book i really dr- draw on the day of pentecost that we see in acts chapter 2 and that story has to do with multiplicity mm-hmm. of tongue of culture of expression is a sign of the beauty of God. And Pentecost opens up a different kind of conversation. It is the embrace. In the book, I talk a lot about Blackness in the historical chapter early on, and a little bit of this colonization and colonialism and all of that, that history of slavery and how the church is intertwined in all of that, right? Mm, mm -hmm. But it's this other story is a story, I guess, through the lens of Pentecost. It's another way of being in the world of multiple tongues. And and that's the argument that we need in the church need to find a new tongue, a new language for speaking about race. Because if we only say, that's why I try to use in the book racialization over and over, because it's something that's done to people. It's Mm -hmm. not as if so race as Toni Morrison would say, there is the human race. She's trying to, in her um, Norton lectures, in her book that became the book, The Origin of Others, say, I'm trying, she says, to defang racism. And, and this race as a social construct. So it's socially real, but not necessarily biologically real. 
And so I'm trying to make a, a kind of theological turn, a pneumatological turn in particular, because a lot of the works that have been have come out don't have the spirit emphasis that I do. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to foreground pneumatology in this conversation. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. So now you talk about the raced world that we live in, and you just got finished talking a little bit about the reality that you do actually draw this very clear, clear line um, between humanity and the racialized world. So I'm just wondering, I want to give you a little bit of time to break that down for us. Like, what does this raced world look like and and how did it happen? Well, I mean, we have a, a history of, I mean, colonialism, right? That is, and you know better than me in your work, that it was really about power and control, I would say. Mm-hmm. That is, that is, was baptized by Christianity and religious expression, mm-hmm. right? It was about domination and economics. And so a, a kind of racialized hierarchy is created, mm-hmm. even presented in such a way that was tr- presented as being grounded in science and biology Mm-hmm. as a way to make the case of this racialized hierarchy and the kind of European white ideals are the top. Yeah. Right. And so, and at the very bottom is blackness, mm-hmm. right? Black people. So therefore, if this is kind of God ordained mm-hmm. hierarchy, therefore those that are deemed the lightest, the whitest, etc are the brightest, hmm. are the most powerful, are the, are the wealthiest, should be at least, right? Should be. If it's God and I or, think, wouldn't you say, are the most human? The most human, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exact, that, that is the, the standard of humanity. Yeah. You know, I, I say that because I, I've been reading, I've been kind of beginning to dive into Sylvia Winter's work, um, Unsettling, the coloniality of being, and that was referred to me, recommended to me by Dr. Reggie Williams, um, who is doing a lot of work on this right now. And I've been really blown away by the way that the depth of her thinking on on what created this, even this thinking, this this thought we have called human, like this idea of what human means. Now, what she does, which I, I don't do. She what she does is she places it inside the creation of this construct called human inside of the Enlightenment period. Oh. And but by doing that, she's actually, of course, centering this human concept in Europe um, and in what was happening in Europe at the time. And what I tend to do, not tend to, what I've learned to do as I've done my own research is to go all the way back to Rome, actually, that it actually starts with Plato and then especially get, gets torqued up with. Um, with Aristotle, and then you, there's a lot in between there, but it helps me to jump forward to Pope Nicholas V, right? So I'm wondering, like, I guess, what is this, the genealogy of humanity, or the the timeline of the development of this concept? 
And I think it's just really fascinating that what you do in your book is you call in the Holy Spirit to say, Holy Spirit, would you please speak to this? (laughs) (laughs) Like you just like, you're like, look, you know, the the scientists say this and, and the philosophers said this and we just need, we need some Holy Spirit to speak into what does it mean to be human? And then that takes you to Pentecost, like you were saying. So I'm wondering, you know, what are some of the main lessons that you gleaned as you were working out the Pentecost and what it means to be human? Yeah. I mean, one of them is the gift of breath, Mm. right? In the sound, I mean, we see that at the beginning of creation and even in Genesis, but here it's, the sound of a rushing mighty wind, right? Ruach or Numa uh, is there. The sound came, mm-hmm. right? So breath, wind is a gift. Yeah. It's the grand equalizer across human, the human spectrum, so to speak. Mm-hmm. No, none of us are, we're stewards of breath. We're not owners of breath. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's coming to a, a even those we disagree with, those who look different than us, right? We all have the breath of God in us, mm. right? The John Wesley would call it prevenient grace for any of that, even the heathens, he would say. And in our time, that there's a sense of, I think it's a calling to honor the other human being because of yeah. divine breath is in all of us, regardless of who we are. That's one gift. The other is, this interesting gift and what I would call the gift, because it is a gift again, mm-hmm. and the power to speak and understand. Mm. Because often in the Pentecost account, the gift of speech because of glossolalia, right? Yeah. And, tongues and all of that mm-hmm. is emphasized. And that's important because that's once a gift. But what's interesting is what's also there is, these folks who are listening in and saying, wait a minute, how is it that we're hearing them in our own native language? Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's, there's a gift of understanding as well. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting, those that are speaking are speaking a foreign tongue. The other is inside my tongue, is inside of me. It's right. <laughs> that so, is so freaky. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let's just break that down because you said that really poetically and for people who may not be familiar with the text, I mean, I think this is really important to understand. Like, you know how people say that, you know, when tongues, you might've heard of like the gift of tongues. If you heard Pentecostalism is like, you're not a Christian unless you have the gift of tongues. That was one of those beliefs that got passed around, I don't know, eighties or something, but at least that's when I came across it. But actually here in the text in Acts um, one, what your CRX two what you're seeing is you're seeing that the people, the tongues are fire, you know, are resting on people's heads. And as it does, people are not speaking in the tongues of angels. They are speaking each other's languages. Right. So what you just said, that the other is in me, that's so deep. And that's what the spirit does. Oh my God. (laughs) What? Jesus, I never really thought of it that way. That's so deep. But there's this sense that there's a kind of, how do we come to understand one another? How do we speak each other's language in some sense, right? 
in a real sense? How do we get on the common kind of common tongue? See, this is the other thing. There's the affirmation of diversity. Because historically, it was like, this is what counts as real theology or alternative, right? We're alternatives. But what we have here is that the affirmation of diversity and, and what I love is the embrace of the spirit of difference, right? Yeah. It's an affirmation, a blessing by the Holy Spirit on those. And if we're thinking historically on black and brown people, uh, historically, the spirit comes upon those that have been deemed ugly to say, no, you're beautiful. Mm-hmm. You speak in the spirit language. You, you, you speak, I'm, I feel you because you're beautiful. I use you. I speak through you. So it's a deeply affirmative. And then what we have is a kind of a center. God is the center. This is the other interesting thing to me. Hmm. You have a God-centered community because they're all speaking different languages, but it says that they were all speaking of God's deeds of power. Wow. Now, this is the interesting move is because we're not in, it's, it's an interesting time. We plop this in our culture mm-hmm. and in the church. Often, I understand self-affirmation. I understand self-assertion, especially when you've been demonized, right? Ostracized. Yeah. But the challenge in this text is really about, I'm not even proclaiming myself. Yes. I'm proclaiming God. God is the center is central in this conversation about racialization. God has to be center, you know? And and so the spirit both does, both what I call in the book, a turn to the human, meaning our particularity. There's an, it's not an erasure of our humanity, right? Turns us to humanity and the affirmation Mm -hmm. of particularity of tongues, culture, but it's also a turn to God. And Sometimes God gets left out and we're only talking about ourselves and the spirit in many ways is saying, here I am, I'm in you, breathing through you, in you. And, and, you know, hello. (laughs) And you know what I love the most about, honestly, I wanted you to weave that back in is that at the center is God and we're not even speaking our own language. So it's not, it's like, it's like doubly it's not about us. Right. It's like we are we're we are centering the other, even That's in the right. language that we're speaking. Isn't that deep? That is just I'm serious. I'm kind of I'm kind of parked there because it's the first time <laughs> I've really considered that. And that's really deep. You said two things that have kind of been deep for me. In the last, you've said many deep things, but these two kind of made me stop and, and think. One of them is that that you just said that God, that the other is in us. And and the decentering of the self, the centering of God and the other, I would, you know, I really um, would add because of what you said. And then, you know, just to hearken back to the saying in uh, in the Caribbean, I believe it's Jamaica. You said yeah. that out of one many, or out of many one. It's one of the what I would have to look it up real quick. Out of many one, or out of one many. Either okay. either. One. Out of many, one of those. Yeah, e pluribus unum is our American saying, which is out of many, one. 
Was that their saying as well? That's what I'm saying. Yes. Okay. It, okay. And I might I might have flipped it to say out of <laughs> many, but it's I'm out of many one. Out of many one. I get it. Okay. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense too. Yeah. So so this this question of diversity, you talk about it as particularity in the mm-hmm. book, right? So the desired particularity of humanity. I I, I want to I um, interact with you over this thought that I had once when I was I did a deep dive on Acts two inductively and manuscript style. So I had all these like, you know, lines going from this to that and repeated words and going back and seeing what's this word mean. And, and I saw for the very first time, two things. And you mentioned one of them as you were starting to talk about the spirit and the breath, um, the pneuma, that it's just like Ruach, which is happening on Genesis one in Genesis one, very first page of the entire Bible. And it struck me that what's happening in Acts two is like a do-over of Genesis 1. It's a recreation. It's a new act of creation. So when Paul talks about, when Paul says you are a new act of creation, what he's really doing is he's describing what happened in Acts 2. That's what this is. This is a new act of creation because you see in Acts 2, a lot of the a lot of the um, references go right back to Genesis one and actually in Genesis two. And so if you see that, then the breath of God that comes in Genesis one is the same as the breath of God that comes in Genesis in Acts two. Yes. Yes. And in many ways, one could say, and I do say it at one point, it's a, in thinking about the, it's a kind of, the spirit is a rehumanizing spirit. Yeah. Right. Because racialization is dehumanizing spirit but the holy spirit is a rehumanizing spirit and it's it's reclaiming that wow through this lens of pentecost you're you're exactly right right i mean some would say it's the church's charter right this is Mm -hmm. who the church was and is called to be in the moment you see the past what you're pointing to but you see the present and the future all Mm -hmm. at pentecost it points us to who we should become Right, and who we're becoming as a people, as a church. What's the what's the relationship of colonization to Pentecost? Because this is one last thing that I saw that just literally blew my mind, um, and I would want to hear your thoughts on this as well. That all you know, um, the the writer of Acts, Luke, your namesake. <laughs> Hello. <Great name. laughs> right, right. The writer of Acts goes through great pains to tell us all the people groups that were there, right? Who were speaking each other's languages. And as I looked up all these people groups, one thing really struck me that they are all colonized people. They are all, all of these people groups are all under the thumb of Rome at the time. And then I said, okay, well, what does language have to do with Rome and and the public square? Because it's important. They went out into the public square and spoke all of these languages. They didn't just do it up in the upper room. It was out in front of everybody. And so so what's that? Well, I don't know if this was law or if it was custom, but it was definitely custom, if not law. But basically in the Roman Empire, there was only one language that was supposed to be spoken out in in the open. It was the trade language of Greek. And so if people were not speaking Greek, they were actually rebelling Mm. 
against the empire. They were, their tongues, through the power of the spirit, the very first act of the Holy Spirit on earth was to decolonize Mm. tongues, to decolonize the voices. Yeah, yeah. Right, the languages, Mm -hmm. the, the communication of colonized people. What do you think of that? Oh, wow. Yes. I mean, Willie Jennings in his commentary on Acts calls it, it's a, it's a revolution <laughs> that happens at Pentecost. Yes. It's what's, what you're pointing to without a doubt, right? That's this whole idea. I talk about the loosening of tongues. Yes. This tongues that are loosed. It's a, a kind of unlearning. It's a, it's a liberating. It's a surplus. Mm-hmm. beyond this one tongue or this one language of the empire it's breaking that open right into something new and something more beautiful mm-hmm. right something more holy actually so without a doubt it's and you what you see is yet in some ways one might see you see it as a expression or act of redemption it's also an act of resistance to the empire yes, yes. and the spirit is the one who's resisting through human bodies and tongues and cultures and languages in the face of empire. That's the, I mean, that's the gift. (laughs) That's the real gift. Yes. Power, the dunamis in that, in Acts one, that dynamite, that's where we get the word dynamite. It's, it breaks the empire open Wow. Right for something new. It's dynamite. It, it's explosive. And what I love at Pentecost is you you see it. You you hear Peter talking about it and others. This kind of to the ends of the earth. You're going to be my witnesses. We hear earlier Acts to the ends of the earth, Judea and other part. Right. Yeah. That is because you can't confine the spirit to one you way, can't. one tongue, one denomination, one ethnic group. No the spirit's too broad and big and beautiful so to the ends of the earth every tongue every nation and every language every tribe i mean that's yes and isn't that like the genesis one call to multiply and fill the earth yes. it's almost like i'm just having all kind of synapses snapping over here i wish <laughs> any people could see us but i mean i'm like i'm like really ready to bust because it's almost like on Genesis one, you have that original, you know, creation epic Hebrew poem, and then you get God in the muck in Genesis two, and you get the fall and and the break of all the relatedness and relationships on Earth, and then the snowball of brokenness or broken relationship snowballs through time, and we see Genesis four and Genesis twelve and eleven, and you know, and 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 then war enters the picture in Genesis fourteen, and that was the first time we have a mention of or the, the, you, we see colonization in the text. Um, one king trying to exact his will over another smaller king or several smaller kings. And it seems like Acts 2 is like after all this time has gone by and the people, you know, the Israel, the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people have now been enslaved several times. They've been colonized several times by several different empires. And here in Acts 2, what I'm hearing you say Mm-hmm. Is that the spirit once again broke like dynamite <laughs> into the world and 
and said no to the colonizer who wants to squash particularity. Mm, yes. To the, to the colonizer who said, the empire who says, there's only one way to be human. And that's to be like me, right? Like right. white, male, um, right. able-bodied right. and all the things, right? So right. can I ask you this? And and then we'll we'll continue this conversation in our next segment, but how has this changed the way you follow Jesus? Hmm. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I got these big questions. Wow. <laughs> you know what? It has helped me on one on one level to understand that my theology, I'll put it this way, that my theology of Jesus is not the same thing as the reality of Jesus. And, and so what I mean is mm -hmm. that Jesus is bigger than the Jesus I even imagined. Mm. It, it's so, so, I'm, I mean, that's been an unfolding in my life journey, I would say, for sure. Mm -hmm. But that Jesus is in all kinds of tongues and languages and cultures, ones that I don't even know of, know about. They're blessed by the Spirit, right? I mean, Jesus is not the Christ without the, being anointed. So this is all Jesus works and ministers in the power of the Spirit, and so if I want to know how the spirit works, look at the life of Jesus. Look at what Jesus did. Look at who he was. And so for me, it's been the widening of Jesus and, and feeling grateful for that. Because mm -hmm. it's also the affirmation that, oh my, even me, Lord, <laughs> even me, you can use my tongue, my gifts. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. So Dr. Powery, I want to talk with you about your chapter Toward a Human Sermon. Can mm. you tell us about that? Tell us about Toward a Human Sermon. Yes, that chapter five is really one that's on homiletics, which is, I define as the theological study of the art of preaching. Uh, it's what I teach mainly um, here and, and, and have done that for a while now. When people, and, and one of the things that we have seen in homiletics is you have two approaches in a lot of the literature. You get either got people who are writing about race as a thing. So say preaching about race or preaching against racism as a topic. Right. Another way that racialization has functioned is black authors, Latino authors, right? They are writing about African-American preaching traditions or Hispanic preaching X, Y, and Z or Asian preaching traditions. It's been racialized. Mm -hmm. 
And what I, this book has been about specifically as it relates to homiletics is really about not, it's about preaching through and beyond racism. And I, I draw quite a bit here and there on Howard Thurman and as someone who embodied this mm-hmm. in his life. And so when I talk about a human form toward a human sermon form, generally when we are thinking about sermon forms in preaching, mm-hmm. if I take you into my introduction to preaching class, we're talking about you can do a sermon in all kinds of forms. You could do it one just by do it first person, a first person monologue. You Maybe you're a biblical character and you mm-hmm. speak as that person, right? That's one uh-huh. way. Right. You can do, you know, the typical three points and with a poem. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can do something that from Paul Scott Wilson, the four pages of a sermon there, that's a metaphor pages, but you talk about trouble in the text, then you move to trouble in our world and analogous trouble in our world. Then you go grace in the text, grace in the world. Those are forms. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. what I, and that's nice. That's good. You know, that works. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. What has often been missing is to think about, because form it's not just on the page, whether you're an outline preacher, or you go up with no notes or you have a full manuscript. Mm-hmm. Form is also about you as a person. The word performance, I don't mean in a negative way, but right. performance means form coming through. So when wow. God wanted to show God's love for us, God performed an incarnate sermon in Jesus Christ. We, the form coming through, the form of God coming through Jesus, right? So, wow. but the pneumatology, because of the emphasis on tongues, embodiment, body, right? Multiplicity. Wait, so you say pneumatology, you mean the study of the spirit? Study of the spirit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because it moves in that direction that we have to take the human body more seriously and embrace that. I think we're getting better in homiletics, definitely, um, have done taking the body more seriously. There's other people who have written about the body and all of that. But sometimes it's just talked about in a metaphoric way Mm -hmm. and not literal. And so what I mean by the human form is what I'm suggesting is What does it mean when we hear in Philippians that when God became a human, took on human form, he became a particular form, the form of a slave? Yeah, now. What does that mean for Christian preaching if the Christ came, took on the human form of a slave? What does that mean for our human form? That's right. Right? I just got chills. I mean, literally, attention to our human form. I mean, St. Augustine and what's considered in in the book on Christian doctrine is considered to be one of the early, even early homiletical textbooks, fourth century, talks about how your life, because this is where I'm going, your life can be an eloquent speech. So what I think in the preaching classrooms, it's more than just your sermon. That's easy. The hardest sermon you'll ever preach is the one you preach with your life. 
Now we're talking about the human form. What form does your life take? What sermon does your life preach? How is the spirit blowing in you and through you for the life of the world? Now let's talk about preaching. Wow. And and now let's talk about decolonization. Because, right. right? Because you can't talk about decolonization without being decolonized. Right. Right? Because you have to live the sermon. I you have to live it. And so paying attention to formation and human form. And 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 let's not let's not get this twisted because a lot of seminaries, divinity schools are talking about spiritual formation. But okay. Formed into what? And how do we assure that we are not malforming? Nobody wants to talk about malformation. Wow. Yes, wait, wait, I just, we just got to sit for a minute in formed into what? <laughs> formed into what? So if you are not doing the, the work of decolonization, if you are not doing the work of particularization of yourself in relationship to the whole rest of the world, and relationship to all if you do and if you are not bringing the other into yourself mm. then in other words embodying the sermon hello doing the sermon then what are you forming into i love that yeah. are you forming into and like with the picture i get in my head are you forming into that enlightenment period platonic Aristotelian vision of the human? Right, right. And and how do we, I mean, for me, this kind of formation into the human. I, I'm, about to, I'm about to break out in tongues right here. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Lord. I'm sorry, keep going, keep going. <laughs> but I mean, when we talk about the human form, you know, we have to, to me, at least in my own theological sense, is think about the form of Jesus and the and draw the implications for that because the spirit is forming us in hopefully, right, in theory at least, into the the likeness of Christ, the image of Jesus. And what I do in the book is really draw on Thurman, who really focused on the human Jesus and Jesus and the disinherited. He doesn't deny the metaphysical. He even says that, you know, the more focus on the divine Jesus, divinity. But that's been part of the problem. We can be so divine, we lose our humanity, right? Divinity has been the conqueror, has been the colonizer. Wow. Right? Only We only focused on the divinity of Christ, and we forget the humanity of Jesus. Oh, my God. So wait. Yes. How do you come back on that? Divinity is the conqueror. Are you saying like, so I, I kind of get it. And then there's another part of me that goes, you know, I, you, like I just, I just got <laughs> caught there. Right. So I kind of get it as in when you look at the pictures of imperial, like imperial pageantry, uh, or even, I mean, my goodness, even take a look at the coronation that's going to be coming up pretty soon for Prince Charles, right? So the third, now King Charles the third, there is an actual belief that that now he he is one with the divine in some weird way, right? So the divinity 
is the conqueror in that way? Is that kind of what you're, are you kind of thinking that's about this poetically? Yeah, I mean, that's how it plays out, right? I mean, I think that's what the history of colonialism has been. And when I say divine, that's power, right? Divinity, I'm only, and it's detached from the earth. It's detached from people on the ground, really. And wow. human and suffering and the oppressed them because you can wipe out the humanity when all you're doing is emphasizing the divinity. The humanity doesn't really mean. So when you start talking about salvation, we're going to focus on the divine, the divinity. So the humanity doesn't really matter, right? This is the influence of Neoplatonic philosophy. Because how do you 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 striving to be immortal, striving to be more spiritual? I have to escape the earth. But that's not the Christian tradition. That's not pneumatology. Because how, my, my brain is twisting over here <laughs> in a very good way. Yeah. In a very good way. Yeah, we're not escaping our embodiment, our human flesh, our bodies. No. The what do we see? We see God becoming incarnate, becoming in flesh. That's the call as Christians to become more embodied, more enfleshed, more in touch with Jesus on the earth. Because to be more spiritual, God help me become more incarnate. It's not to become more spiritual. I have to escape the earth and go into the pie in the sky in heaven in the sweet by and by. No, God help me to be in touch with my neighbors on the earth. Help me to be fully present. And people, when they preach, often will say, sometimes you'll hear them pray before they preach, Lord, move me out the way. No, God uses us. God, it, the prayer should be, God, help me be fully present in this moment. Help me to be fully embodied and incarnate in this moment. And what we realize is that the work of the spirit is incarnational. That's the movement, the incarnation. The spirit is the agent of incarnation. And so it's the enfleshment of life. It is the enfleshment of the word. It is the call to follow the human Jesus that becomes critical and to be in touch and proximate to pain. Those who are suffering, those who are in prison, that's the work of the spirit. How do we become to get to realize back to Genesis? that we are all dust and to dust we will return, right? We are breath and dust, the breath and dust of God. And so perhaps if we embrace what I call in the, in the book, the ethics of dust, we might be able to make some progress. We might be able to see some more justice in the world, right? To be able to experience the truth of God in our midst. If we recognize your dust and I'm dust, right? There's a sense of humility. That's what it means to be human. Humus in Latin, from the earth. That's where we're all from. And so it's connected to the land and connected to our brothers and sisters across time, across cultures, across place. But it's the gift. It's this expansive vision. That's what happens when you engage the spirit. It's not just a shout <laughs> in a church. What's the shout all about if you're not helping out in the streets and helping our community? I mean, what what what's going on if we're not caring and tending to the neighbor in need, those who are struggling with mental illness? And so the spirit helps us become more human. 
more in touch with the earth, more in touch with dust and breath and water and wind. That's where the spirit has been blowing me. That's the call of, of God on, on our lives and on the, on the life of the church, the real church. If you're going to follow Jesus, look, I'm following the human Jesus because what I've discovered is that people often are turned off from the church, the institutional church. Mm -hmm. They are often not turned off by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. when you follow, when you blow, the wind of the spirit will blow you in the human way of Jesus. And so that's that's what this, this book is about. It's a call for us to embrace our mortality rather than get over arguments again and again over morality, because theology is really about life and death. It's about our mortality. We are mortals. We are dust. And in the season of Lent, I'm reminded, we shouldn't need Lent to remind us on Ash Wednesday, we're dust and the dust we shall return. Every day of the week, we should remember that's who we are. That's who we're called to be. And there's something very humble about that. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and wherever our guests are joining us. This episode was engineered and edited by and produced by Corey Nathan of Scan Media. Freedom Road podcast is executive produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. We promise we won't flood your inbox. We invite you to listen again. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. And for our special subscribers on Patreon and Substack, we have a really, really awesome treat for you. We're going to have a special conversation on those platforms with Dr. Powery. So join us there. <laughs>